I'm going to read a passage of scripture. And then you have an assignment. Here's the passage, then the assignment. It's from 2 Samuel. For those of you who are a little less acquainted with the Bible, it's there. About a quarter of the way through. And it's David, the warrior king's last song that he wrote. Uh, the next chapter is his last words. But this is a fabulous little passage. And I'll tell you why I'm reading it in a moment. Verse 2 says from Second Samuel 22, He said, David, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. I called to the Lord. The Lord is my rock. Number one. Number two, fortress. Three, deliverer. Four, my God. Five, my rock. Six, my shield. Seven, my, the horn of my salvation. Eight, my stronghold. Nine, my refuge. And ten, my savior. See, so here's the question. What part of Jesus has been most impactful in your life. In other words, of all the names that Jesus is called, and there are many more, which one has had the greatest impact upon you and why? Flip around, talk to the person next to you and answer that question. Which metaphor for Jesus has been the most impacting in your life? And then secondly, how or why? You've got a couple of minutes and then we are back to the scriptures. You know, folks, what happens is that we have a preconceived picture of Jesus and there is a presupposition that I, I know that. I, I know him. Do you? Do I? And I think when Dana called me and she said, Dad, I think we should just do a short little mini-series on who are you or who do people say I am? You know, kind of a question along those lines. She preached last Sunday on Jesus as King. I think it's good for us to marinate in that a little bit, to drill down on that one thing that you feel Jesus wants to do to reveal himself in you. We can easily be dismissive this deep, an inch deep. And I've got Jesus. I've got him sorted. I know who he is. I, I know what he does. And, and, and all that we're actually acknowledging is the introduction to this incredibly wonderful Messiah. And I think it's worthwhile. If you're struggling with your devotional life, your personal walk with Jesus, man, I can tell you there's no better thing than to take a good old concordance or we've all got computers and, and phones and just take one aspect of who he is and drill down deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and your soul will be refreshed as you encounter him in a unique way. So Dana spoke last Sunday about Jesus as king. I want to speak this Sunday dabble a little bit around the conversation of Jesus' lamb. In fact, when Rock Harbor announced their new guy, I was preaching there, and Glenn came up on the screen with his wife, Holly, I believe, and their four kiddos. And I watched that. I said, Lord, what are you saying about this man? 
And I texted him afterwards and I said, Glenn, what I felt God say to me is you will roar like a lamb. If we want a really substantial theology, robust, healthy, growing theology, we really do need to live with mystery. Our minds, fashioned by modernity, is that we can fathom everything out mentally. That's where our mind goes. Now, post-modernity, not so much. We question the mind and science being the answer for all things. And so we, as believers, followers of Jesus, we have to live with mystery. There are so many mysterious things that are in the scriptures about God, and we have to live comfortably with that mystery. In fact, it will keep us curious. I was asked, I am asked to speak on Thursday to a group of young leaders uh, from around the nation. Um, and uh, they asked me to speak on longevity in ministry. So Meryl, Dane, and I will be going, and John Mark will do an interview with us, and I'll speak for about 20 minutes. But I have to say, one of the reasons why I have loved Jesus and loved his church for 45 years, honestly, 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 has been because of the mystery. I've said to Meryl, we've been married 43 years come November. I said, babe, you are mysterious to me. I don't get you. Please let that always be true. Because the moment I get you, I'll probably become bored with you. But you continuously amaze me. In fact, with our two and a half week vacation now, we spent time talking about everything that we differ on. I think we found five things that we agreed on and countless, endless things that we disagree or we just different. She loves cold water. Who wants to be in a cold, freezing lake when you can be in a jacuzzi? I mean, I'm asking you with any semblance of sanity. We are curiously different. And that is true with God. If you want a strong walk with Jesus, live with mystery. It's okay. Secondly, live with tension. Our faith has tensions. We can't bring everything into our psychology, into our minds to try to hold it together. My mentor, a man called Carl Cronier, when I came to faith around your ages, I was 18, 19 years old. And he said to me, Chris, I will give you a thinking man's faith. And one of the things he said to me, or to us as a group of young leaders, he said, think of it this way. Every truth has a corresponding truth intention. If you only live in one truth, you will end up in distortion, exaggeration, and extremism. But when you are discovering a truth, always find what the complementary truth is, even if it doesn't seem like they add up. But think of a railway line where on the horizon they meet. So in eternity, all of the great mysteries and tensions of the text will meet again. And so we as Jesus lovers have to be able to live with and. Probably one of the most important words in theology. And. God chooses and I choose. God gives grace and I activate my faith. Everything that you can think of in our Jesus journey has a truth intention. Healing and suffering. I had a young man corner me here one Sunday afterwards and said, now let me get you straight. You don't believe God will heal everyone today? I said, no, absolutely not. He said, how can you not believe that? I said, we'll die. 
Every one of us will die. So at some point in time, God will not heal us. No, that's not what I mean. I said, well, if we're all going to die of something, that means there are some things that Jesus won't heal us of. And, everyone, and is a most exquisite theological word. It confuses us and amazes us. What I want to speak about this, this uh, afternoon, evening, whatever it is, pictures coming from the wedding, how to distract me in my hour of anointing. John the baptizer is baptizing people in the Jordan. And it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now I want to just gently walk through three ideas in this magnificent subject. The first thing is really just a comment on the frontline war that we are facing right now. I think, and I've said this many times, my generation, obviously I was in South Africa in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Our war was racism. Here it was the civil rights movement. In South Africa it was Free Mandela. And uh, did we do a great job? I'm not sure. In South Africa I think we did a pretty good job. Mandela was in prison for 27 years, and we fought in prayer and fasting for that to change. People misunderstood. I, I don't know why I tell this is a stupid story, but, but um, I went on a captain's course because I was in the South African infantry. And I came top of my class in the captain's course. The only problem is two weeks later, I marched in the free Mandela march. 30,000 of us marched down the high street in Durban. In front of me were socialists singing their song. Behind me were communists. The ANC further back. And there was a group of us singing in tongues because we were petrified. I got called in and I was never promoted. Silly little cost for a greater story. Free Mandela as a story and a picture against racism that had so brutalized Southern Africa. So what am I saying here? What I want us to understand is the frontline issue that this generation will face is sexual identity and all that it embraces. And more specifically to tonight's conversation is defining masculinity. I've been reading a very interesting book by a fairly progressive theologian called Kristen Pobes Dumez called Jesus and John Wayne. And her thesis is that white evangelicalism have bought into this kind of masculine warrior uh, picture of faith and of Jesus. And she argues quite aggressively, historically and theologically against that. I haven't finished reading the book. I don't know if I can recommend it or not. But it is part of what I've been mulling over during these last few days. I think the error of her writing to this point and the error of many who are writing around this is the inability to understand and. When we define masculinity, we have to use and. Jesus is the lamb and the lion. I binge watched SEAL Team while I was away. Those of you who know it, hallelujah. If you don't know it, whatever. But it's about a team, and, and it's, the producer is an ex-Navy SEAL. And I watched an interview with him. 
It's actually a great study of leadership for me. But the point here is these men who were phenomenal fighters, and I know it's Hollywood, I know all that, warriors for the sake of freedom, had an inability to come home and be lambs. An inability to allow gentleness and kindness and goodness and vulnerability to leak its way through. And a major part of the behind or, or in the fence, as they say, not out the fence, outside of the fence when they go to combat, but inside the fence is their inability to take off the warrior garment and to embrace the garment of the lamb. Gentle, kind, good, vulnerable, transparent. And what happens is we are addressing the idea of masculinity in an either-or setting. Carry a knife, wear boots, have a hat, go camping, shoot and kill with an arrow, eat. That is masculinity. Well, it is, but there's an and behind that. Because there's the artist, the poet, the songwriter, the creative all of whom are equally sons and daughters of the Most High God, but who have tapped into an expanse of who they are because Jesus is both lion and lamb. He is both warrior and shepherd. And we have a tendency, I certainly do, to want Jesus to be the lion. When people stand against me, I want him to roar and let his roar like Narnia, just as I just, just push them back. And then to see the error of their ways. But then lo and behold, he doesn't act as a lion, but he acts as a lamb. Gentle, kind, forgiving. And I think the war on masculinity has to have an and in there somewhere. Does it make sense, folks? St. Augustine wrote, why a lamb in his passion? Because he underwent death without being guilty of any iniquity. Why a lion in his passion? Because in being slain, he slew death. Why a lamb in his resurrection? Because his innocence is everlasting. Why a lion in his resurrection? Because everlasting also is his might. The invitation is to allow the father to reveal his son to us as lion and as lamb. If you, I say this with gentleness, have an issue with the Bible militarily, you, you, you cannot cope with what warriorship is in the text. You know, that I, I should have looked it up. I apologize. In Zechariah, there was a verse I found some years ago which said words to this effect, when the fathers go to war, the children rejoice in the streets. When the children know that dad's fighting for me, dad will do battle for me, dad will give up his life for me. There is a singing in the streets because I'm going to be okay because my dad is fighting on my behalf. Meryl and I were talking about a young lady, not in this church, beautiful woman who was sexually molested by a family friend. Got a great dad, just very gentle. Very understated. And she said in a moment, and loves her pops amazingly, but said in a moment of great tenderness to us, I never felt protected. My dad wouldn't stand up for me. And by some of your mmms, 
That could be true of you or someone you know. The invitation to a Jesus story is that he is both lion and lamb, dear friends. The second thing that's obvious that jumps out of the text is the lamb image of the Old Covenant, Old Testament, if you wish. Two, two particular examples. The first is with um, Abraham. And those of you who don't know the story, Abraham is the father of three faiths. The Jewish faith, the Islam faith or Muslim and Christian. Amazing, 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 amazing story. But there comes a time when he has to go up a mountain to go and sacrifice his son. And you know the story. The angel grabs his hand as he's about to butcher his son as a sacrificial offering. And he says, no, you don't have to do this. And Isaac, who must have been old enough to understand, said, Dad, where is the sacrificial lamb? And his reply, Abraham says, surely the Lord will provide. It's a moment of great protection and provision. It's okay. God will provide the lamb that needs to be sacrificed. And I'll comment about that in a moment. The second is obviously Egypt and Moses. The plagues rush through Egypt. And the last one, <coughs> excuse me, I'm too passionate tonight. The last one is where they have to slaughter a lamb's throat, take the blood and paint it on the door frame. Now, listen, let's be honest. None of that makes sense to any of us. Imagine if I say to you, Genesis peeps, I'd like you to go home, get a lamb, and I want you to cut its throat, and I want you to bleed it out, and I want you to take the blood, and I want you to paint it on your door frame. You're like, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. I'm going to do that. See, we don't have a cultural context for that, do we? It doesn't make sense to us. But you see, the primary idea as I lead into my third point but the primary idea here is something or someone has to pay for the crime. You see, we all have a moral code, don't we? We all have a moral code. We all have a sense of what's right and wrong. Even those who don't want to speak about sin or those who don't believe in unrighteousness or anything have an internal moral code. And they decide, we decide, when that code is being broken, when a crime has been committed. So we Christians who stand for, I don't know, I don't want to pick a very controversial subject, and everyone that comes to my mind is horribly controversial. Um, so, because I don't want to get into trouble, as I sometimes do, because I don't explain it fully. But, but let's say Christians shouldn't get married. I know a horrible one, horrible, I mean, shouldn't get divorced. Horrible, horrible, horrible one, forgive me. But, but you see, folks, Enter that space is the knowledge of good and evil. Remember Genesis chapter 1? Yes, good. <laughs> chapter 3. And the serpent was cunning, the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Chris, did this actually happen? It might have. Is it mythology? None of us really know for sure. But it seems to be validated throughout the scripture referring to Adam, the first Adam. It seems to be not just a theological idea or a mythological notion. It seems to have happened. And the serpent jumped to verse 4. He said, no, no, you won't die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, 
Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. We all believe we know good from evil. That's what we all believe. And so we all set our moral compass and moral code based on an internal sense or feel or conviction. And so sin, as we read from John the Baptizer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is essentially a sense in which, like Adam and Eve, we rebelled against God's order of things. We created our own order of things. And folks, we live in a world, please, please at least be honest with me. If you fight me philosophically, Putin believes he's right. It's good. I read an article of a Harvard professor who is now speaking about zoophilia, which means sex with animals, who believes it's right. It's the last taboo, she calls it. That if we really were free, we can let men have sex with their dogs. If we really, really were free. See, her moral code and compass draws the line there. Or a professor from, forgive me now, Pennsylvania, I think, who said there's no harm, and he used a fancy word, for adults to have sex with children. Say, be true to yourself. Just be true to yourself. Have sex with kids. Now, something inside of you says at least somewhere over there, you draw a moral line saying, oh, no, 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 no. That is not good. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, what he is saying, John the Baptizer is saying, is this Lamb of God is saying there is sin and I'm here to liberate you from that sin, which at its core is rebellion against God's sense of good and bad. Are you with me, dear friends? It's not an easy subject. Sin is not the flavor of the month. Until, of course, and I don't agree with this, Christians go and stand outside of abortion clinics and cuss, or people to cuss at those who are going for abortion. No, no, that's wrong, say the progressive liberals. Well, on what basis is it wrong? You say yes, I say no. On what basis is it? We all have a moral compass and we all draw a line in the sand. Does it make sense to you? Even those who don't believe their son are not that happy with Putin. Even those who do not believe that you can have sex with animals and believe that you must be true to yourself will say, no, no, that's not good. If we don't understand that, what did Jesus die for? The Lamb of God, the one who is prepared to pay the price. To take away the sin, the sin being rebellion against God and creating our own moral story. Have any of you ever studied the Roman Empire? The longest empire in human history that we know of. We don't know if the Aztecs went longer, but at least we know we've recorded history. Have you ever read about what they did? Well, they had slaves. And they could basically do with that slave whatever they wanted. Is that right or wrong? Is that good or bad? See, they thought it was okay. She wasn't a human. 
She was a commodity that they owned. Because they thought it was good. Their moral compass said she's a thing, not a human being. She's not made in the image of God. She is something I own and I can do with her whatever I wish. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Take away. What does that mean? The one translation, the void voice translation says, who erases our sin. Oh, I love the gospel people. I so love this jolly gospel because the Lamb of God takes away. It has three parts. He forgives us our sin. He erases the sin from us and he separates us from it. Let me go through those three again. He takes our sin and he forgives us. Chris, I forgive you. I have things that I have to have repented to God and said, God, I'm so sorry I've allowed my own sense of conduct, my own moral code to be the yardstick. The problem is it moves. Because oftentimes the yardstick I live by that I apply to me, I don't apply to others. See? I forgive you, Chris. I forgive you of those things. Oh, Father, I'm so grateful. Your forgiveness is sublime. But that's not all. It says he cleanses us from all of those things. It's like he pours us. The Japanese have a, a, a phrase which I forget now. It's called forest bathing. And because of the high urban urbanization of the Japanese culture, they're seeing more and more young Japanese who will not leave their room for years. They order food in. They work online. Everything they do is in their room on the computer. And the dehumanization of that reality is causing the Japanese authorities an endless amount of concern. And so they've introduced something. I wish I'd brought the book with me to read it to you. It's a beautiful Japanese word which means forest bathing. And so they get these young people and they put them in the forest by themselves with nothing. No phone, no iPad, no book. No Bible, in our case, nothing. Because they say that the humanity needs to be restored by a forest bathing. Now, dear friends, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He forgives me. He cleanses me from that. And then thirdly, it says that he remembers my sin no more. Do you understand? Do I understand the implications of that? He remembers my sin no more. Hey, Jesus, you know, I just have to talk to you. Remember three years ago when I had that one night stand? He's like, no, no. No, I can't remember that. No, 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 remember. Remember, remember and I fasted and I prayed and I asked you to say, no. No, I don't remember. Is this a good gospel or what? Is this profound grace or what? Is this expansive mercy or what? I don't become a Christian to live under the shadow of my sinful ways. I become a Christian 
to be forgiven, to be cleansed, and then for the sin to be removed from me. And that means when I think about that again, dear friends, it's the enemy engaging my mind in yesterday's sin. Because if I engage with Jesus on that, he says, no, I don't remember. I, I, sorry, Chris, remind me because I'm really not getting this. He remembers your sin no more. So many Christians live anxious and angry and, and twisted on the inside because we don't understand that little phrase. He remembers my sin no more. Years later, they come in and see me. And, oh, geez, I can't believe what I did when I was 18-year-old at college. And, and I just can't shake it, Chris. And I don't know whether to jump on the table and shout at them or gently hold their hand and caress them. He remembers my sin no more. Remember Peter? After Peter had betrayed him, denied him. And they sit on the beach having a barbecue together. He doesn't say, Peter, now tell me a little bit about this thing, man. Just, come on, just explain to me what did you do? What was your thinking? Get all kind of postmodern and philosophical with me. He only says this, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, so I do. We're going to feed my lambs. He remembers our sin no more. If you think this is too good to be true, it's because it's true, but more than true. We don't understand the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we live forever guilty for a sin that's been forgiven, cleansed, and forgotten. This gospel is exquisite. I know you're sitting there thinking, is that true? Is what, is, is what Chris has said true? I know. It's too good to be believed. I know. It's too hard to live with. God, God, I don't deserve you to do that to me. And, and then I go and do it again. It's like, God says, no, I forgive you. Now, there can be consequences, and I don't want to go into that now. Forgive you. I cleanse you. I forget. He chooses to do that. Tim Keller, I close with this quote. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet, I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to a deep humility and a deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think of myself, <coughs> sorry, I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I just think of myself less. We live in the tension, dear friend. But this gospel is the tension of forgiveness, of cleansing, and forgottenness. That's Jesus the Lamb. Available to everyone. A lot of time is spent counseling, therapy, and Meryl's a therapist, so I'm happy for you to see her. But some of it is just the fact that we haven't said, yes, I want my own moral code. 
I want to define my own good from evil. I'm going to live with the consequences of that. And that's not good. Rather than say, Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? And will you forget about my sin? My crap. Would you close your eyes with me, please? This gospel is too good. Sometimes it's too hard to even try to believe it. We want to add yes buts. We want to add pieces to it. But it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All sin. All sin. No sin is exempt. He takes it away by forgiveness. By cleansing. and By choosing to forget it. He doesn't keep tabs on me. He doesn't have this long list of things I've done wrong that he brings against me like a poor parent. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all sins for all people who by grace through faith accept that he takes them away. I want to ask you, just keep your eyes closed. That sin that keeps reoccurring in your life, Can you bring it to the Lord with an open hand and an open heart? Because we all have them. We were comfortable enough and we all said, okay, what is that sin? We all have it. But the liberty that comes because the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Therein lies the true mystery. Oh, I thank you. Think of that old chorus we used to sing in the 70s. I don't know why Jesus loves me. I don't know why He cares. I don't know why He sacrificed His life. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad He did. Thank you, Penny. I'm so glad He did. Before you go home tonight, please get someone to pray with you if you're stuck in the mud of your own moral code. All right. Do you want to bring your kiddos? Where are you? The Hagmans? Okay. So one of the things in our community, I'm sorry to go from that to that, but... I think God's done a wonderful thing.